Hi there, my name is Sam Sheen, and I'm joined as always by my friend and professional colleague, Mary Lundberg. And this is part two of our Captivated Audience podcast with Al Cato of Beyond. We start off part two by talking about fintechs and their approach to change. One of the things you notice about fintechs is they're very keen on celebrating wins. They will sometimes have a tendency because they do self-builds or they have some new initiative and they will rush to the finish line because there is a culture of success in completing something, less so on the look to say, have we completed it properly? Is it actually completed the way we expected? Or are we in such a rush in competition with other functions to say we've had a win that we'll just tidy that up later on? the fintech environment is is very interesting that talks to another of the points i raised which is doing the requirements and testing at the same time you know if you move too quickly and if you are simply focused on that output there is a potential for missing out critical tests which are needed that needs to be developed in a quiet calm environment you need to have the testing designed at the same time but hang on a second al i'm sorry to interrupt we're talking testing, right? So for most compliance people, when we hear testing, we're thinking second line testing around effectiveness. So are you, are you talking about something we can delegate to a handful of quants or compliance people to design and organize? Change in compliance is, is highly political and it's a potentially very risky business. You need to get that testing tight. It needs to be well understood. It needs to generate, you need to generate the right tests and it needs a high level of competence and enough time to put those together. Fintechs will often do this with kind of test-based coding. That's only one part of the problem. You really need to understand the use cases which you're going to be pushing through this tool and accept the fact that you're going to learn as you go through this journey. It's one of the things I'm always very keen on emphasizing when we're going through the, the delivery phase. What do you do, though, if it isn't working? You're testing telling you that the change initiative you've introduced isn't working the way you intended. You don't get it all right up front. If you did, change would be straightforward. You've got to leave yourself open to learning. So as you go through, you work with data sets, you understand the context of a particular tool, you will then start to build new tests. And you need a way of bringing that back in and ensuring that those are completed and passed in the appropriate way before you actually roll out. How about those naysayers? Can we at least address that elephant in the room? Because we all know that we are stumbling across a few naysayers and consensus is, is part of it, you know, seeking that as well. Do you have any tips on when you are going through these kind of changes, how to address those people? I think one of the critical areas in project management that often gets, it doesn't get enough airtime, is stakeholder management. There'll be people who have a better idea. There'll be people who've tried this before and it didn't work. There'll be people who, who simply don't want to give you the resources that are required because they have, they have other agenda items that they're really focused on. And that needs to be acknowledged and engaged with rather than ignored and put to one side. It's all very important to try and engage with all those parties that are, that are involved. When you start the project, there will be some time invested in trying to understand who you're going to be reaching out to, who you're going to contact, who's going to be providing resources, very importantly, what their challenges might be. But Al, actually... let me just ask you, though, because engagement doesn't mean you accommodate them forever. It doesn't mean you give in to them. You still need to get the project to go ahead. I think it's very important to take people's views into account at the beginning and understand where their concerns are coming from. You need to be really open to what people are telling you. I mean, I think from a consultant's perspective, it is part of our privilege to be able to take an external view. 
I go in there with very few preconceptions about what's going on internally. And I have to accept that quite often. I won't know the six months of conversations that have happened previously. I won't know where people have concerns within the business. It's, it's my duty, if you like, to go and find that out. And it may well be that someone who is being thought of as a naysayer actually has a very, very valid concern. I would never say that the project should go ahead in its originally, you know, as it was originally envisaged without taking on feedback. I think it's important to listen and then course correct or craft the, the project accordingly so that it'll be successful within that specific environment. The more input you can get up front about that, the, the better. So let's then talk a little bit more then about that emotional component. I had a big change project I was involved with, and we had a consultant. His nickname was The Smoke because he just seemed to sort of float around the halls and have conversations. But he was very good at sort of slipping back and giving us warning about who might be, who, who might be upset. And some people were very upset because they felt, you know, the project would impact their activities or how they were judged for performance or their bonus. How do you achieve the balance of not getting rolled up into the drama? Because it must be the case that you are a fresh set of ears when you go in and compliance people often don't feel listened to. I mean, how do you actually get on with doing work and not just be agony ant the whole time you're there? That is a very interesting question. I think that as a consultant, you have a couple of guiding principles. If you like, my loyalty internally is to honestly deliver the project that I have been asked to, to look after. But ultimately, the decisions, as I look at them, are all about how they will impact whether the project will be successful or not. That's a great leveler, I guess, when you're looking at how to manage conversations or how to take people with you. You've got to understand that people may be finding this particularly challenging. They might be finding the way in which it's actually being executed quite difficult. They may have real concerns. It is important to listen, but it's also important to rise above that and constantly sort of reflect on, okay, so what you're telling me is that this is a problem, understood. What that means in the context of the project is that we may have to do these particular elements slightly differently, bringing it back to progress and being incredibly positive. But this is so hard to do virtually sometimes. Find that guy, the smoke, you know, luring in, lurking in the hallway because you're not in the hallway. Definitely adds a, it definitely adds a challenge. It means that most interactions are more formal. That That is the big difference that I've noticed. Online, yep, much more difficult. You have to try and bake that in. I think a big part of adapting to the, the more remote environment is trying to create a degree of informality, not constantly scheduling hour-long meetings, having quick catches, catch-ups with people, and sticking to time. Can we have a regular catch up for five or 10 minutes and then stick to that five or 10 minutes? So people are busy. And I think another thing that's incumbent on us as change professionals and, and consultants is to realize that we're only part of our client's day. You know, they've got a whole operation to run a lot of the time. They've got a million things going on. Agreed. But also when you have these town hall meetings or big meetings, right? You have people in this case now that you were previously in the same room with now switching off There's you no know, camera, switching off sound. We don't know what they do if they actually go ahead and, you know, start doing the operational thing in the background, reading emails or just zooming out, right? And I'm not like zooming out, but, you know, yeah. they're <laughs> really right in this case, zooming out. So that's also another type of challenge, right? So do you have any tips for us? in that regard? There are certain occasions in which town halls are absolutely essential. 
town halls are mainly for communication. You, know, you want to send out a message broadcast that something is happening. But if you're looking to try and have a really engaged meeting with more than maybe five people, that needs very, very careful planning. They need to be pre-prepped. They need to understand most of the challenges that they need you need as the facilitator to broadly have a good view of the opinion that they're taking in so that you can help broker a really productive conversation. That's not so different to what would be happening in the non-virtual world, but I think it's just become massively enhanced as we've all become remote. So without actually naming any of your clients, can you talk about a situation where you've gone in for a, a change or even a rescue exercise uh, where you've been able to help a firm improve its compliance program? I, I like to think this is a really good people story. We had been brought in to look at uh, implementing some technology at a particular client. They had a very complex process for a client onboarding. And at that particular point in time, they had no real onboarding flow. Everything was being managed in Excel spreadsheets, which is frankly still not really that uncommon. And there was a really big remediation program that started, but it was based in a different region. It had its own demands. They were working to some regulatory constraints in that region. And it left the EMEA team really very unsupported. As we came through the door with this, uh, the mindset of engaging to build out new technology, it became very clear that actually the perception of this team's performance on the ground was extremely poor. And actually, the team were working really, really hard. I and mean, the people were pulling long hours. and They were trying to get things done. But the results just weren't coming. So onboarding has started to be seen as a blocker rather than an enabling and supportive function. And the sales team had become extremely frustrated about the rate of onboarding. Uh, and this led to some pretty impressive outbursts on the trading floor. We kind of took a step back, took stock of the situation. And then so rather than diving into starting a complex technology journey and looking at those requirements, it was really clear that what was needed here was stripping back the process, designing a simplified flow that would meet the needs of compliance, but also help the guys to deliver. So we took charge of reporting. We helped set expectations. And I think one of the most important things we did is we actually brought people together to talk through their challenges. And this really helped some, set some expectations with the sales teams and also allowed the sales teams to explain why they were finding things frustrating and demonstrate that we're all on the same side and we were trying to get to the same goal, but we had to work together to prioritize clients so that we were actually pushing through volume. We also got the opportunity to explain to the sales teams why some things were going to be more difficult than others. So we were able to explain why the family office of a particularly notorious individual was not going to be a candidate for a quick on board. And this really encouraged a dialogue between the front office and the onboarding team. So we were able to set some expectations <laughs> up front um, and, and make sure we were focused on the right kind of clients. This sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it, Sam? Oh, how many times have I been asked, can we make all our customers low risk? Because <laughs> that will help get onboard them faster. Can we please roll back and let's figure out what's the cause of the problem you think you're experiencing, right? Mm. But also in this case, coming back to understanding the requirements, right? Why do we need that kind of information, that data, and what are we going to use it for, especially for KYC purposes, right? Oh, how many times have we had the debate? Why do I have to make a PEP high risk? <laughs> just go, are we here again? It's Groundhog Day. Really? I just, anyways, I, I, I digress. We have a couple more topics to cover, but Marie, I know there's one that we heard a lot about last year. Absolutely. You know, continuous or perpetual KYC, right? So in this case, Al, could you please provide us again with a high level explanation of, of this concept? Uh, absolutely. So I recently co-hosted a workshop with David Buxton from Arachnus on this topic. Mm. And we, we actually talked over this definition quite a bit. 
Uh, and I like this um, from the perspective of change. I think it quite neatly captures a number of the key topics underpinning perpetual KYC. And it, and it got David's blessing as well, which I, I think stands for a lot. So we see perpetual KYC really as the continual monitoring of a baseline client profile against internal and external data to identify changes or unexpected client behavior, and then critically trigger reviews for material changes and then run automatic updates for non-material change. Is this isn't one thing that you need to do. It's built from a number of different components, which you need to develop over a, over a journey. So if I'm not mistaken, you actually worked on a report dealing with this subject, right? That's correct. Yes. One of the reasons for writing this report came from attending an industry event where there was a poll and 70% of the respondents on that poll stated that they just weren't clear what perpetual KYC actually involved. Hmm. And, and really, I think that's fair enough. So it, it is a complex topic and there are these multiple components and they all impact functions in a bank in, in different ways. And I think that perpetual KYC often gets referred to as this sort of specific solution where really it's the outcome of several different initiatives and capabilities that need to be delivered a, a, across a, a journey in several stages. So, Al, what are some of the highlights that you raise in that report? So, in the report, we highlight some of the drivers for change, you know, the challenges that exist today with time-driven periodic review. And we also talk about the three stages to get to perpetual KYC. So, if you want to have more information about Arachnus, you can find earlier podcasts here on Captivated Audience. But you can also find the report, right? Why do I find it? Um, so, so the report's called Continual Compliance, uh, a guide to delivering perpetual KYC. And you'll find it on our website, which is beyondfs.co.uk. And the report sits alongside all of our collateral blogs and white papers. And I encourage anyone with an interest in change and onboarding operations or compliance to take a look. Always interested to get feedback as well. So if any of your audience uh, would like to engage and let me know what they think, I would be delighted. Final question for me for the podcast. I know you and your teammates started doing something a couple of years ago that was really quite subtle, but extremely useful. And that was you were actually looking at the reg tech that was available mm. for people to use as part of their AML programs. And I believe you've launched something called the FIN or the FIN. Do you want to just tell what that whole project was about and where it's at? Absolutely. So, yeah, we were very excited about this. This is the FinTech Innovation Network or, or the FIN. We got involved in doing some work with challenger banks, and there was a it was a very exciting uh, exciting project. We were looking at uh, how to build a KYC solution in a greenfield site. So we ended up doing quite a detailed uh, vendor assessment, uh, and we really realised there was a need for a tool which brought together all the reg techs that are available out there uh, within the kind of CLM and fintech space. Drilling down on options really took a great deal of effort and time. And we wanted to make this process easier for everybody in the long run. The intent of FIN is to help financial service professionals better understand the fintech vendor landscape. That's what it's designed to do. So we aim to provide greater clarity around which vendors are actually in the market, the exact services and products that each vendor provides, and why their particular product or proposition is different from their competitors, and how they actually go about solving industry challenges. At the moment, we've got about 10 early adopters on the site, including Arachnis, Comply Advantage, Northrow, and Wealth Dynamics, and they help us in terms of driving the design. You'll find that there's around 350 different vendors actually represented on the platform, and you can uh, sign up as a financial services professional for free. So if you're looking for a particular type of vendor, uh, you'll be able to search by the category that you're looking for and then uh, see what options are available to you. Wow, that sounds really good. 
Have you gotten a lot of response for that? Yeah, we, we started with 350 different um, vendors on the platform, but we're adding more every week. And it's really interesting to see it grow over time. It's very, it's really, it's an exciting project for us. And we really hope that it brings something for, to the industry as well. I think one of the major challenges is trying to determine what your options are if you have a particular challenge. You really want to focus in quickly and then start asking pertinent questions. Thank you so much, Al. That was a pleasure having you on the Captivated Audience. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both. And if you would like to do as Al has done and join us on an episode of our podcast, or if you've got some ideas on topics you would like us to cover, feel free to reach out to us directly on our Captivated Audience dedicated LinkedIn page, or you can write to us directly on our website at captivatedaudience.eu. We'd love to hear from you. Until the next time, please continue to go to those vaccination appointments. We hope your families are safe and we'll see you next time.